0: This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland, Awakening as Readiness, was given at the Desert Sunrise Retreat in Arizona on February 17th, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas, and um, welcome to those of you who've come in to join us for the evening. For, um, for a very long time, um, maybe more than a thousand years, we in the Koan tradition have been called the School of Sudden Enlightenment, and that's been a very important part of our identity and what it is we think we're doing. And um, the good part of that, I think, has been that in the Cohen School, there has always been this absolute unwavering commitment to the idea that we can wake up that we can be enlightened, everybody in this room and everybody not in this room as well. That's not only an unshakable belief, but an unshakable experience that happens over and over and over again. And so a great deal of the practice is, um, is aimed at just that at that kind of experience of um, sudden and, and complete, um, what does Jay Salinger say, stunning and final um, transformation of consciousness. Um, the downside, maybe, is that there's a sense of... Um, kind of thunderclappiness or lightningness about sudden enlightenment, that it's something that comes from outside and um, we can long for it, yearn for it, try to put ourselves in the way of it, but fundamentally it's um, an arbitrary event. It will or it won't happen and it comes from somewhere else. So recently, uh, I've been really fascinated by the fact that some scholars of Chinese Buddhism, who I trust a lot, have been reconsidering this phrase, dunwu, which is translated as uh, sudden enlightenment, and saying that at least another way to look at it, and maybe a more accurate way to translate it, would be as the readiness for awakening. So we become the school of readiness for awakening instead of the school of sudden enlightenment. So why should that matter? Why does that make a difference? I think it really does. I think it makes a fundamental difference because it changes how we understand the project. It changes how we understand what we're doing and maybe um, how we go about doing it. If we have a sense of our aspiration as a readiness for enlightenment, that's not so thunderclappy and lightning-like. That's something we can do. That's something within our own power to accomplish, we can be ready. You can right this very second start being ready for awakening. Um, and that's a great thing. That's a great change. We're not at the whim of something from somewhere else, we are um, engaged deeply in a known practice that leads um, to a known effect, we hope. So I wanted to talk about uh, this idea of our practice as being readiness for awakening and um, a couple of aspects of it tonight to begin a, a, a conversation about it. Um, as many of you probably know, Chinese is in, in large part, not completely but in large part, a pictorial language. The characters come from pictures of things. So um, a tree, the, the character for tree kind of looks like a tree and if you put three of them together you get the word for forest, like that. Um, and what's really interesting in Chinese is, is the, 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 the nouns like that, the verbs like that, that are pretty straightforward are pretty straightforward in their pictorial designations. But how do you draw a picture of readiness? How, how a culture chooses to do that tells us a lot about the culture. And um, in this case, we're talking about something very old, thousands and thousands of years old. But the picture of readiness is of a servant with a slightly bowed head not in submission but in attention receiving um, the mandate of what they're to do next okay so that's us we are standing attentive with slightly bowed heads Looking to receive the mandate of what we should do, and if we think as we do that so much of this practice is about developing the capacity to respond, to respond to circumstances, to respond to what we're um, confronted with, that this is this is fun, that's our understanding of of compassion is the ability to respond well. And truly, to whatever we, we confront. So, if we understand that as something we we wish to um, attain, the ability to do that, then this moment of readiness is quite beautiful. This moment of, with bowed head, with some, and I'll talk about this in a moment, with some humility, being ready. To get the mandate, being ready to hear from, and here comes the interesting question, to hear from whom the mandate of what it is we should do, how we should respond. Uh, So here we are, attentive, waiting, ready, available, desirous of being helpful, desirous of receiving the mandate. What are the pieces of that? What are the aspects of that? Well, one of the old Chinese teachers, Bai Zhang, said that this this dun, this readiness, is the willingness to relinquish misleading thoughts. So what's that? It's a great definition, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. Um, you've got, you don't have to go into a big thing about um, bad thoughts, wrong thoughts, you know, horrible thoughts, thoughts unworthy of me, thoughts totally worthy of me, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) You know, you don't have to go into a big thing like that. They're just misleading. And um, misleading from what? Misleading from the ability to be attentive and present and ready to receive the mandate of how to respond. That's it. That's the only. That's the only definition of misleading. Does it bring you closer to that state of readiness, or does it distract you from that state of readiness? So the rest of Bai Zhang's definition: um, the willingness. Okay, good. The willingness to relinquish those misleading thoughts. Not annihilate, destroy, um, scold. fight with, wrestle with scald, burn, destroy none of that just relinquish let them go, put them down Um, in the Asian languages with which I'm familiar, out of which Buddhism comes, the the word that we translate as relinquish or renunciation, those those kinds of words. We, when we when we use those words, we tend to emphasize what you're giving up. Like I always think of, what are you giving up for Lent? You know, that's that's a kind of um, renunciation, or or you renounce, you give something up in order to. Um, go into the monastery or, you know, whatever it is, join the communist cell, whatever. Um, In those Asian languages, there's equal weight given to the space that is cleared by the relinquishment or the renunciation and what becomes possible in that space. So when you say, I... I have the willingness to relinquish misleading thoughts. You're saying, not only am I willing to put these things down that are not helpful, but I want to clear a space for something else, for readiness to happen. And that's very much in that, the vow of relinquishing that you're doing. Okay, so um, what's that like? What's that moment like? Another of this word dun which is now suggested to mean um, this readiness is to pause and that seems really important when we think of Bai willingness to relinquish misleading thoughts there's a stop there's a pause we're not going to keep moving in the same direction we've been moving in Um, we're going to to, um, work with the thoughts the feelings the habits the ways of being that Mislead us, that bring us away from the present moment, that try to substitute themselves for the present moment. All of these misleading thoughts, um, feelings, habits, actions, reactions, all of that have the goal of substituting themselves for what's actually happening. They have the goal of reinforcing the idea that how we think and feel about what's happening is more important than what's actually happening. They pull us out of a direct relationship, a direct standing there, head slightly bowed, attentively waiting to understand as much as we can about what's going on. They pull us away from that into the um, much smaller room of what we think, feel, and react to about the situation and try to convince us that that's what's important. So that's, mis- that's what is meant by something that's misleading in this circumstance. So we pause. We decline to go there. We decline to step into the smaller room with um, those thoughts, feelings, reactions, and habits that want us to believe that how we think and feel about something is more important than the thing itself. We refrain from doing that. And then, having stopped that... Um, unthinking habitual response we do as we were talking about last night which is that we listen we truly listen what's actually going on here what can I understand by listening openly without judgment without prejudice for a while what can I understand about this situation And what can I see that I can't understand? Which is maybe just as important. As important as... Seeing what there is to know about something is accepting what we can't know. I can't know someone else's complete motivation. I can't know the reasons that brought them to this moment and brought them to this action. Um, I can't know all of it because the world is way too complicated. So I have some, again that word, humility about what it's possible for me to even hear if I listen with attention. But I do anyway, but I listen anyway to get as much as I can. So there's this pausing, this um, stopping the habitual flow of our thoughts and feelings and reactions. There's a listening. What can I know? What can I hear that I can't know? What difference does that make? How does that make me more ready and part of the um, the condition of this pausing and this relinquishing and this listening is humility that can be a hard word for some westerners because we associate it with humiliation but we don't have to we can reclaim it for ourselves. Um, Humility comes from the Latin humus, which means the ground, the earth, the soil. And originally, um, humilitas was to be close to the ground. Nothing wrong with that, you know. Probably a pretty good thing a lot of the time. So we can think of it as meaning something lowly, or we can think of it as meaning something Close to what's actually happening, close to the earth, grounded, connected to what's going on, and that doesn't seem like a bad thing at all. If we're willing to um, to allow for this this humility. Um, we can begin to think of all the good reasons there are to have it. What are you humble in front of? What do you feel humility in the face of? Maybe it's something as simple as how long a retreat day is. (laughs) Maybe it's uh, a humility in front of what you've seen happen in your heart-mind today during the retreat to see the the endless stream of thought and feeling um, the endless misleading that's going on the endless pulling out <clears throat> the endless habit the oh, not again stuff that happens over and over and over again maybe that's cause for a kind of humility maybe you feel humility in front of the question of the great matter the great matter of life and death Maybe there's some humility in the largeness of that, in the mystery of that. Humility in the face of the vastness, how big things are, and again, how mysterious. Humility in the face of the complexity of the world, in the complexity of the human heart. in the ways it's possible to feel such deep happiness in this life humility in the face of what we receive those things for which we are grateful those things we don't even think about but that keep us alive there are so many reasons that have nothing to do with humiliation but everything to do with reality to bow our heads in the face of this life and this world. There are so many reasons to allow ourselves to be acted upon by what we don't know, what we can't know, by the great mystery of things. reason of all is because it's truer than not doing it. In this way when we get down to the really fundamental practices of which this is one, this practice of humility we do them not because they're good for us they might be good for us that might be a good byproduct But that's not why we do them. This is not a self-improvement project. We don't do these things because they're good for us. We do them because they bring us closer to the way things actually are. So, for example, in Santa Fe in recent times, we've been talking a lot about the importance of relationship to our practice. And um, one of the things we talked about was Sangha life. We don't do sangha. We don't become a sangha. We don't um, sit here together as a sangha because it's good for us. Um, And some of us might say, yeah, like cod liver oil (laughs) is good for us. This is not the reason. We do sangha. We become sangha. Because one of the fundamental truths of our way is the interpermeation of everything. Everything interpermeates everything else. This is right down at the roots of the Dharma. So we express interpermeation through Sangha. That's why we do it, because it brings us closer to what's true about the nature of things. We practice readiness for awakening. Because it brings us closer to our actual condition. We do stand in this vast universe with heads slightly bowed. And if we are very lucky, with the willingness in our hearts to receive the mandate, to discern what is asked of us, and to do our best to provide it. From the point of view of the koan way, that is a good life, that is a happy life, to the extent that we can do that. So our practice, our standing in the place of readiness for awakening, is exactly the same as being awakened. We're standing in the same place. We're in the same attitude. It's the same thing. So the practice brings us to something true about the nature of human life. Um, In that moment of pause and listening and humility... This is the same thing we've talked about at other times as sitting in the dark, for example, which I'll talk a lot more about tomorrow, um, Saturday night. Being willing to sit in the dark, to not know, to not have a plan, but to wait and to listen and to hear, to discern what the next thing is. It's not knowing. It's being what Iris Murdoch called unselfed. That those glorious moments when we are willing to put something else at the center of our attention so that we are unselfed and something else becomes the center. And how lovely that is when all of our self-concern drops away and something else takes center stage. All of those things, being unselfed, sitting in the dark, not knowing, That's this moment of readiness. And I want to give you an example of the kind of thing that happens to the extent that we are willing to take this stance of readiness for awakening. Um, you would be excused for thinking that somebody decided that the best way to sell Buddhism in the West was to say it's a way of happiness. We're all going to be happy. And that might be true, although um, I guarantee you that happiness is going to look a lot different than what you thought at the beginning. Um, But I think, at least as importantly, it's a way of transforming sorrow. And I don't mean transforming sorrow into happiness or into something else, but transforming the kind of young sorrow that we come to practice with into a mature sorrow. By young sorrow, I mean um, the sorrow that comes from not getting what you want, things not turning out the way you want them to turn out or the world not being the way you think the world ought to be that's young sorrow and there's nothing wrong with that young sorrow is usually mixed with or or made up of um, disappointment frustration even anger despair all of those things we don't Lose sorrow, but that young sorrow over time transforms into a mature sorrow, which is something like see this world so imperfect, so imperfectible, not perfectible, so much struggle so much pain and yet things persist in trying things go on living the sun rises the flowers open up the rain falls people try and try and try again is there not something ineffably beautiful about that is there not Something so poignant about the way things go on trying in an imperfect world, in a sorrowful world. Is there not a great tenderness about that? And do we have to change that to anything else? Isn't that something true about the nature of life? But that move from I am suffering, I am sorrowful because I'm not getting what I want or because the world is not as I think it ought to be, the move from that to how poignant the world is, how tender, that in its imperfection we go on trying, all beings go on trying, a sorrow that is that tenderness. There's no need to fix that. That is something true about life. And that is the kind of transformation that holding to a readiness for awakening makes possible. It's also true that um, our happiness transforms as well. If we um, come in in a kind of similar way where we think that happiness is about getting what we want or about the world being the way we think the world ought to be, over time that transforms into a happiness that is not based in our circumstances and our conditions but is um, an ability to see the happiness of others and an ability to find joy in the joy of others. Happiness is no longer personal. Happiness is an appreciation of joy, of exuberance, um, in a world that is also difficult and full of sorrow. Happiness is joy in the joy of others, un unreservedly happiness is a long view as sorrow is a long view and both are true the great thing about that kind of happiness is um, there are so many more occasions to be happy not just our own but those of um, others around us and at at distance from us that we become aware of. So, this state of readiness for awakening, this state of pausing the old ways, the usual ways, the ways that probably brought us to practice, the ways that have become painful to us, of stopping them Of listening instead. Of feeling a humility that comes not from a sense of being less than or um, lowly. But a humility that comes from a sense of awe. A willingness to open ourselves to that awe. To be, as we were saying last night, naked in front of it. Not defended against it, knocked over by it, brought to our knees by it, but not turning away from that awe, however that is for you, however you experience that. Doing all of that, allowing a mature sorrow and a mature happiness to ripen in us, a long view a wide view over time that becomes indistinguishable from sudden enlightenment and maybe the difference is that because it is over time it gets into us so deep that it will never let us go. There's nothing thunderclappy about it. It is old and deep. And it persists. And the transformations that arise out of that are ours forever. The universe doesn't take take backs with that kind of awakening. So, um, that's why a little matter of scholarly debate about how to translate a word might make a real difference, might be really important, might open us to a different way of understanding what it is we're doing, might enrich it, might complicate it, all of those good things. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at jonesutherlanddharmaworks.org.